Well, welcome, guys. Glad you guys are here. And tonight is our last night uh, for six weeks. We'll have six weeks' worth of uh, community groups. And in fact, I think uh, it may even be more than that because after we get done with the six weeks block, six week block of community group, uh, then we have some other things like baptism uh, in March. So I have to look and see when we start up again. But it'll be a couple months before we start up again. But tonight is uh, issue five, and then when we get back together in a couple months, we'll pick up with issue six. But this uh, entire book is about the the mission of the church. And we've looked at the mission of the universal church. Then last week, the mission as it's implemented through the local church. And now, uh, in issue five, what's a model, an example for missions in the church look like? And as you read in the uh, two articles and then in the passages that we looked up, it's really centered on the Apostle Paul and uh, his missionary strategy and how and whether that forms uh, an example, a model that that we're to follow. So that's what we'll be discussing on page 19 in issue 5. So think about the case studies. And how would you advise Alex and Carol as a result of what you learned in your, your studies? So Alex is on staff at the church. He's been on staff at Suburban Community Church for three years, I think. And uh, he starts out by him expressing his surprise at how these two leaders in the church are at odds about the mission strategy for the, the church. So you've got the chairman of the elder board, and then you've got, the I think, the senior pastor. And uh, they, they see it two different ways. The senior pastor has a plan that he would like Alex to follow or whoever goes and plants a church for them, 10 miles uh, 10 miles away from where some of their families live. Uh, they want to start a church. He's got a plan, a strategy for that. The chairman of the elders is saying, <clears throat> you read the book of Acts, and it looks like you know the spirit led, and there wasn't really a plan, but uh, that just being sensitive to the spirit, preaching the gospel, uh, things kind of came together. I uh, don't want to misrepresent what he said in the case study, but I think that was the gist of it. So how would you advise Alex <clears throat> in that situation? You know, he's, he's between the two. Senior pastor wants the strategy and a plan, and the uh, chairman of the elders says, just kind of let it happen. So how would you advise him? <clears throat> Sir? Yeah. You do, yep. In the opening part of his article, he suggested that the plan was just that. Now, say that first part again, though, that Hessel Grave was saying that the... He made a mention that, you know, that... <coughs> and he uses the term modus operandi. Uh-huh. And he says... Uh, sure. He says, we might begin by asking if Paul had the missionary strategy. Some say yes, others say no. Much depends on the definition of strategy. And here you're going to get into, you know, wax poetics, I guess. The strategy is meant to be a deliberate, well-formulated, executed plan of action based on human observation and experience and by now, Paul. 
Yeah. You know, then Paul had a little bit of strategy, but if we take the words to mean a flexible modus operandi, fill up under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and subject his direction with control, then Paul did. I see, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His strategy was just that, let's think of the Holy Spirit. Okay. But then as, right, then as Hesselgrave goes on in that article, <clears throat> he identifies a strategy that Paul appears to have intentionally followed, right? Uh, and that's how Hesselgrave comes up with that 10-point wheel cycle that he sees in the three missionary journeys of, of Paul, that he, he followed that same pattern. So, yeah, Paul's making it up as he goes, <laughs> Because he's the original guy, so he doesn't have anything to rely on that uh, as examples for him. Uh, but he's specially chosen by God to pioneer and I think serve as this example <laughs> for us. Uh, so I'm giving you my pl- tipping my hand on, on what I tell Alex. What would you? What else would you guys say to, to Alex? Would anybody say? And if you would say so, but would anybody say? <laughs> Hey, look, uh, you know, preach the gospel, we'll pray for you, and uh, we'll put some money into this thing, and we'll put some human resources into it as well. We're going to encourage people from our church to go with you on that basis. Alex is a good guy. Alex is going to pray about it, you know, be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. He's going to preach the gospel. Is that enough for you if you're in leadership? No matter what, whether it's planning a church or anything, you've got to have a plan. Okay. No, I wouldn't just say, yeah, just jump on out there, ready, set, go. I think you definitely need a plan okay. of some type or another. And we're not Paul. Yeah. We have, you know, his to go, his yeah. form to go by. Or yeah. And it appears he had a plan to me. Uh, what, what are the evidences that he had a plan? I mean, one, yeah. Uh, what, what are the evidences? Well, one of them is, hey. <laughs> We were well. At least I hope you got a nap out of it this afternoon. Did you get a nap? All right, good. <laughs> Page nineteen, issue five. Well, you know, one evident. Think about this. You look at the Book of Acts, and you look at the places where Paul went. He didn't just go to every hamlet, you know, in Asia Minor. He went to commercial centers, and he went along routes where there were going to be people. It, it's definitely the case that he intentionally went where there were people. Cities, population centers. Well, that's a plan, isn't it? So he's not just out there floating around. Just whoever I might run into, then I'll, gi- I'll give the gospel to and we'll see if this thing catches fire. He's actually following a plan to go to population centers. That in itself is intentionality, isn't it? So if Alex or whoever might come to the leadership of our church or any other and say, you know, I want to plant a church, one of the things we'd want to know is what does he know about where he's going? And what does he know about the people that are there? And, and, and how many people are there? And then having reached some of those people, you know, then what's your you know, plan for the future to branch, out, to branch out from there? That would be an intentional plan that seems to be in keeping with Paul, what Paul was doing, going to population centers. Sir? Yeah, so, and then when that plan Yeah. 
city, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you see him saying that. You know, there were times where I was pro- I was hindered. You know, something happened that kept me from from coming, so he adjusted. But the mere fact that you could be hindered means you had a plan. <laughs> You know, if you don't have a plan, you can't be hindered from it, right? So the mere fact that Paul can say, well, this is what I intended to do, and it didn't happen the way I intended, okay, he's okay with that. God can change the plans, right? But that means he had a plan, and then God would, God changed it. Sir? No, just I, practically, if we're somewhere, boomeranging back to Alex and their situation at their church yeah. and, and the ministry they wanted to plan, uh, you know, mediating... This is maybe overly simple, but you might just be able to say something like, well, let's let's follow this course of action for six months or 12 months and mm-hmm. see mm-hmm. how the Lord leads, what doors mm-hmm. he opens mm-hmm. in that particular neighborhood mm-hmm. with, with that Bible study that was, you know, whatever the pastor's plans were. And just to, you know, and then let's meet again to see how the Lord's moving and if we need to, I mean, that, that's, okay. that may be too simple, yeah. but it seems like oh. that would help things from being calcified. Yeah, good. Yep. You know, this juxtaposition, I always wanted to use that word. <laughs> um, that uh, between the idea of planning and the work of the Spirit, I think out of this as we think about it, I would encourage us to be careful about making that false dichotomy. It doesn't have to be you're either led by the Spirit or you plan. You, you can do both of those. You can, be, you can plan, but then have the humility and the dependence upon God to say, God, change it as, as you sovereignly see fit. So, you know, get shipwrecked as I'm going or, you know, whatever. Okay, I'll be flexible. I'll be flexible with it. But there's a long and inglorious <laughs> history uh, in evangelicalism of of believing that it is more spiritual the the less you plan the more spiritual you are because then that is allowing the spirit to move rather than you getting in the way and coming up with these so-called man-made plans i mean one extreme of that is what i grew up with as a pentecostal i grew up literally with the idea that it's better not to plan the order of your service on Sunday. To allow the Spirit to dictate what you're going to do. And I, that's probably foreign to everybody in here, but I'm not making that up. Okay, it's a, Can you relate to that? or you, you grew up in a church like that? The six elders, the apostolic Christian church, you know, the six elders would stand, they'd sit on the podium, and we would sing our hymns, Men on one side, women on the other, and we can always do it. And then it came time for the service, and they would all just sit there. And then they would say, kind of like when you open the door and you say, no, you go first. They would all look at each other and say, you go ahead, and you go ahead. They would do this thing for like five five minutes. And then nobody would get up and go. And finally, one of the old fellows would say, oh, get up there. They never had, I don't believe they had, they say they never had a message plan. They would just open the Bible and he would sit there and he'd look at it for a few minutes. And then he'd preach. Huh. And they say they never planned anything. Not a 
And that was a sign of depending on the spirit, spirit moving. Not only do we not plan who's going to talk, whoever talks hasn't planned what they're going to talk about. Right? Yeah. So, okay, you can relate to that then. That, that was the deal with me. You know, no, no order of service, just let the spirit move and then see how it goes. And I mean, it could go in any direction. But, you know, the spirit can move in the planning. I think that's what we, that's what we need. The, the, you know, in the spirit, why can't the spirit just as easily move on the pastor while he's studying <laughs> than when he steps into the bullpen? You know, but the idea is the only time the spirit can start moving is when you get up there. Okay, now, Lord, fill my mouth. Well, what about on Monday, you know, prior to that? <laughs> He's on the golf course. The spirit can't move then. <laughs> nice, thanks. <laughs> but, you know, what about in the, in the preparation process? So we just need to be very careful that we don't make that false dichotomy, and it, and it happens, you know, very often. And I think if you look carefully at what Paul was doing, he had intentionality had a strategy to what he's doing. So, I mean, for me, that's how I'd advise Alex, uh, that the senior pastor appears to be right, <laughs> taking the better course of action in this. The chairman of the elders is taking this just sort of open-ended, let's see what happens thing. And f- do you think it would be good stewardship even for a church to commit resources to something where you haven't at least laid down some semblance of a plan and strategy as to what you're going to do? I mean, for me, I wouldn't want to recommend to our leadership team you know, that we get behind something unless somebody's shown us a reasonable plan, a reasonable expectation of how they're going to go, how they're going to go about it, back to what Aaron was saying, that you, know, you need a plan for things. You know, for our church here, uh, we, had, we made a plan. Uh, we've had to adjust it. Uh, it took us a lot longer than I'd hoped to get a building. You know? But, hey, that's the way it went. So I had laid out by 2006, we would have a building. We started looking for property minute one. Because at the time we started the church, if you were going to have a facility, you were going to build it because there weren't empty buildings around. You didn't have schools closing and you know, that kind of stuff. That changed at the end of 2008. But uh, So for right away, we had a search committee of guys looking for property. We divided up areas to look at. We looked at every piece of property around. I mean that, every piece of property around. Very early on. But for reasons I won't bore you with, God changed that. And it didn't work out in the timing that, that we had. Okay, well, then you roll with it. You know, you, you change it. So we had a much longer period of time in rented facilities and kind of a makeshift setup than, than I had intended. But God got us through it, thank the Lord, you know, and people faithfully came and, and did it until we finally got to, to come here. So, but we had a plan, and the plan had to change. So we have the plan, but we're not in complete control of the plan. Now, that plan, believe it or not, was based on this book by Hesselgrave, the very guy that uh, we have chapter two of his book, uh, Planting Churches Cross-Culturally. So our strategy here was based upon what you see in his, uh, his article. What page is that on where you see that, uh, that wheel, that cycle? Eight, what is it? Fifteen? Yeah, there you go. So as I thought about, well, what, how do you plan a church? I've never done that before. <laughs> I, I said, you know, well, let's look and see what, 
You know, who can I go to for expertise? How about, say, Paul? <laughs> That's a novel idea. And I had read this book, and Hesselgrave had laid out the approach that Paul took. And so roughly, we, we tried to do this very thing. So, you know, step one there, we were commissioned by our parent church to go out like Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church at Antioch in Acts 13. We were commissioned to go and do this. Uh, but then where it really starts to get practical is step two. How do you, how do you go about contacting the audience? And we had, to, we had to think about that. What are we going to do to make contacts with people in, at that time, New Boston? That's where we were. You know, the first place we started meeting was at Sibley and Middlebelt. And we met there for six years. And that was our target, to go there. And then God, you know, changed the plan. He kept migrating us, you know, this way, east. But contacting the audience. Well, the first thing we did was we let people know we were there. We sent out mailers, first thing. said, introducing, at that time, Community Baptist Church. And we had an introductory service for people to come. And we, and then I told them what we are about, what our core values are at, at this church. So that was the very first thing we did. But then in an ongoing way, we wanted to contact the audience, and that's how we came up with the idea of continually or regularly sending mailers out to the community to invite them to series that we were going to do. So our way, you know, in at that time, 2001, 2002, to contact the audience was different than Paul's. Paul would go to the synagogue. Paul would go to the marketplace. He established in Acts 19, uh, a, a rented a lecture hall, the, the Hall of Tyrannus, <laughs> to do lectures there. And people came and listened, and he reasoned with them, and some were converted. So out of that, that's how we came up with the idea of let's invite people to that kind of thing. So let's invite people to discovering God. And let's have a time where we can invite you to come to our sort of lecture hall. <laughs> this is our version of that. And when we're we going to do it, we're going to do it on Sunday morning. Why on Sunday morning? Because that's when people in our culture think about religious stuff <laughs> on Sunday morning. And why are we going to do it at 11 o'clock? So they can sleep in, you know. So we'll do worship early. We'll get up early. And we'll let you guys come at 11 o'clock. And when you come at 11 o'clock, we'll have some coffee and bagels for you. I mean, the whole thing came out of, we've got to have some way to contact the audience. But notice, it was a way of contacting the audience that was appropriate, at least we thought, for our culture, for our time. We have the ability to send mailers out. Paul didn't have that. We've got a postal system where we can do that. We've got a place to which we can invite them. Rented though it be, but you know Paul had a place that he invited people uh, in that lecture hall of Tyrannus. So similar in, in that respect. And then out of that, we wanted to do the third thing, communicate the gospel. And then we expected that if God's in this, that there are going to be people who get saved out of that, which is the fourth thing, that people are converted. And you know, so then it, it goes on from there. Uh, we established on our calendar from day one dates that we would, in 2002, that we would baptize the people who got saved. So we just put the dates on the calendar. This is when we're going to have baptisms. 
And one of the questions was, well, what if nobody gets saved? And I said, well, you think like that, you get kicked out of the club. (laughs) You can't be part of our church plan if you think like that. But really, that's what we're doing this for. If people aren't going to get saved, then there's no reason for us to have this church plan. I mean, the, the point of the church plan was not to just have a place to shift Christians around, but it was actually to reach people who hadn't been reached. So we've got to have a way to contact them to do that, communicate the gospel, and assume that's going to happen. And if that happens, then we've got to have a way to assimilate them into the life of the church, baptize them and, and all that. So everything that we've done here has really started with this thing here. And it's been based on that, on that cycle. Sir? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> hey, hey, all right. Yeah, it's on now, baby. <laughs> now listen, listen. We're looking for. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> hey, at the time, at the time we did that, at the time, at the time we did that. They were building subdivisions all over the place out there. I, in fact, I went around and took pictures of the subdivisions they're building in Huron Township. Seriously, so, really. And so that was, a happening, that was a happening place. And they built a number of subdivisions there. Uh, in addition to that, it was where they had planned, the, the powers that be had planned the, what they call it, Aerotropolis out of the airport. So where we would have been located would have been right on the border of that whole thing. Now, to this day, now we're in 2014, it hasn't happened. But that was a plan. The county had bought up all kinds of property there to have that thing. So it was going to be, it was, it was going to be a happening place. Hasn't quite happened. God knew that. And we thought that. So, you know, we put some thought into it to say, yeah, it's not much now. It's New Boston. <laughs> You know, it's Huron Township, but it's gonna, they're going to build on that, and we'd like to be a part of you know, reaching those people. And in that area, Huron Township, there were, there were three Baptist churches, three. Combined, there weren't 150 people. In all, all three combined, there weren't 150 people. So really tiny, there's one in Willow. See, Huron Township is all these little villages. It's Willow, Waltz. New Boston. And between all of them in Huron Township, you had three Baptist churches that didn't have 150 people total. So there was plenty of room for a church to come and, and try to reach these people, especially if there's going to be more of them as a result of this building and all that. So I know we're joking, but we thought that that was you know, going to develop into more, but God knew that, as you say, and he gradually moved us, moved us this way. So I think part of that then relates to Carol. Okay, there, there's Alex. He's on staff at Suburban Community Church. He's wondering, what should I go with, the senior pastor's approach or the chairman of the elders' approach? But then there's Carol. Carol's a member of the church. She lives in the area where they're planning to plant it, if you recall. And she's got some anxiety about inviting friends and family to come to the new church. So what would you say to her? Good point. My motive. Yeah. You, I think you might even have said this. Uh, you know, one, that's one of the hamstrings in our culture is people saying, 
well, if I can't, yes. I'm not going to do yes. it because if I yes. do it, I wouldn't have true motives. Yeah. Therefore, I'm just not going to do yeah. X, yeah. Y, Z, the right thing, you know, because yeah. then I wouldn't, right. I, my heart's not willing, so it's better yeah. to just yeah. stay at home. Or, yeah, she did say that, didn't she? She felt pressured at the women's Bible study, you know, to get involved in this, and so I don't want to have false motives on the thing, so now I'm going to... You know, I'm going I'm to lay back. Well, the truth is, if you wait until you have absolutely pure motives for anything, <laughs> okay, this side of heaven, you know, it ain't going to happen, uh, one. Uh, but, so, I think we're saying, at least, chime in if you, say, if you think something else, but let's, let's tell her, hey, look, you know, you, you, our, our motives are always tainted to some extent. If it's obedient to the Great Commission, then get involved with it, you know, and pray that your motives will catch up with your actions, <laughs> You know, as you obey what the Lord is is telling us to do here, but I'd I'd take it a step further myself, and uh, you know, this idea of just invite friends and family to this thing—at least for us here—that's not what we did. Uh, because again, we weren't we weren't trying to just shift Christians around. We were we were very glad, you know, thank the Lord for the people that He has brought us, who have some experience, who God has moved down our way who for various reasons have moved into the area, for whatever reasons, or, you know, found themselves looking for a church, Christian people who have come to help us and have been a great help to us. Uh, but I'm thankful that we have a mix of people at our church that include folks like that, but also first-generation Christians who this is the only church they've known. You know, they got baptized here, they got saved here, you know, they're growing in the Lord here. So that's a good mix to have. But... You know, we, we weren't looking to then say invite friends and family. We want to invite people who don't know the Lord to come to a lecture <laughs> to hear about the Lord. I mean, that was really what we were doing. So you're, you're flying kind of blind, you know. It's kind of exciting. It's kind of scary. I can remember walking in carrying stuff every Sunday morning into Summit High School. And one of the guys that was with our little core group at the time was a guy named Ed Martin. And I'm walking in. I can still remember this, Ed. We're walking in. We happen to be walking in at the same time, carrying stuff in. Each of us got this bin in our hands. And Ed looks at me and goes, so is this the way the Apostle Paul did it? <laughs> I don't know if you remember that. I'm going, dude, I think so. <laughs> we'll see. We're kind of flying blind, you know. So... Here we are, and we're setting up every week, and we're inviting people to come. And if you get three people to come, you're just thrilled, you know, that responded to your mailer. But three people come. And I can still remember. I can still remember the first people that came. I can still remember where they were sitting. I can still remember how I felt about the fact that some people came. Thank God. I remember the Akers family, Ken and Beth Akers, who are now in Moscow. Well, Beth's here now for her daughter's uh, having her baby in a couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, he's working for Ford and he's stationed out in Moscow now. But they were, they were some of the first people to respond to our mailer in uh, January 2002. We'd only been going for a few months. So they sit there, we give them a notebook. I'm going through this series, What's the Difference Between World Religions? And so I do my lecture. I meet them. You know, they were very friendly. They leave. They leave the notebooks behind. I can still remember that. Going, well, they weren't that interested in that, were they? Because <laughs> we're giving these notebooks to people. They leave the notebooks behind. Next week, they're not there. You know, so your emotions are, can you imagine, you're up and down. But then the following week, they're back again. 
And I'm like, wow, I didn't think I'd, I just told him, I didn't think I'd see you again. You left the notebook. <laughs> I go, oh, we didn't know we could take it. So I guess I didn't make that clear. And so, you know, one thing led to another. They had a couple of teenage boys. Their teenage boys became part of our youth group of three. <laughs> Jessica Carrico and the Two Acres boys. And just, you know, gradually that's what starts happening. And we, you know, every week we're just inviting those kind of people. Then other people hear about what we're doing, Christian people. You know, some of those came, shouldered the load with us, and then one thing led to another. So as far as Carol goes, you know, I, I would personally prefer a strategy that says, let's identify unsaved friends and family, particularly. Now, if you happen to have some friends and family who happen to be in church transition, they're looking for a church, of course, fine. But let's target unsaved people, and let's have a way to try to communicate to those unsaved people when we invite them to come. Otherwise, we'll just be in this, you know, we need a church in this area, let's find Christians who want to come to a, a church in this area, and then you're just doing that kind of shell game with Christians. So, any other thoughts about what you'd say to Carol? Sir? One thing that sort of struck me is Paul made, I believe, he made plans, but then God stepped in and subverted it at some point. I really wonder, would he, he have written prison epistles if he wasn't in prison? So it's sort of like he spread the gospel, but then he was involved in the maturation process because God put him there. He's in prison, the only thing he had to do was write. Yeah. So it's sort of like huh. make plans, but then God does what he wants with it. So. Okay, uh, so sometimes he God forced the issue by making Paul be around longer or have more time to be involved not just in the evangelizing but in the edification of these people, right? When he shipwrecked, did he stay a couple years? Well, you know, and in Ephesus he wasn't shipwrecked. He stayed three years in Ephesus. <clears throat> and he stayed 18 months, a year and a half in Corinth. So there were some times where he stayed three months. You know, he stayed different lengths of time, but 18 months in Corinth, three years, the longest is three years in, in Ephesus. And he wanted to go somewhere... And he couldn't. I, I can't remember exactly how it was, if it was massive, whatever. But right. he wanted to go somewhere, yeah. and it, the Lord stopped him from it. And I can't remember the exact things, but then he was opened up to make that journey. Was it Macedonia, maybe? Macedonia. But, uh, but one of the things he wanted to do, no matter what amount of time he spent, <clears throat> if you go back to the Pauline cycle on page 15, is look at step seven there. Leadership consecrate. So somehow he wanted to he wanted to see people who were leaders who could step in after he left. Because if he if he takes off and there aren't any leaders there, well now you know now what? So much so that <clears throat> he writes to Titus, Titus chapter one. Uh, Titus 1.5, I think. Titus 1.5, I'm sure. And he says, I left you, Titus, in Crete, for you to appoint elders. Leadership. So in that case, he's delegating that responsibility to Titus while he goes someplace else. But this idea of, of him being there long enough, or if he can't be there long enough, delegating to somebody that we're going to have leadership in this place, is clearly part of Paul's, Paul's strategy. 
So he had various lengths of time that he stayed, but it always included making sure the people matured to the point that they had some people who could rise up and be identified as, as leaders in the, in the church. So again, that needs to instruct what we do, doesn't it? That's why we're having Leadership Institute. You know, you, you've got to do that. Remember I told you guys in the very first meeting we had that I met with guys that have been in ministry a long time when we started this church. I said, if you had it to do over, what would you do different? And training leaders was a big, was a big thing. But Paul made sure that there, there were leaders to train. When we support missionaries, um, church planters, wherever they are, whether in, in the U.S. Or, or on the foreign field, they need to be people who have as part of their strategy a plan to develop leaders. Rob Howell is somebody many of you guys know, and Rob is a guy that we support, and uh, he spent eight years in Tanzania, East Africa. And if you look at what Rob did in Tanzania for those eight years, it is really textbook what a missionary ought to do. He did this Pauline cycle. I mean, we've tried to do it here, and the reason I'm, I'm stressing that is because let's not let's not divide foreign and domestic missions. I mean, they're, they're planting churches in different places, that's all, okay? Seeing the mission go forward through God's church and using the same kind of strategy. So we've used it our way here. He used it there in their culture. And he is now in China. He's left Tanzania, but he left Tanzania with leaders that he trained. And those guys have planted churches. Out of the group that he brought together, I mean, as I say, textbook, it's just a beautiful thing. And for us to be able to be a small part of just supporting him, you know, to do that, but, but why do you do that? Because that's the example Paul gave us. All right, look at number two. Some people think Luke intended Acts to be a neutral description of the life of the early church. Others think he was offering a definite prescription for church life today, which... You know, neutral de- description, so describing what other people did or prescribing what we should do. Which, which do you think? Well, it was a letter to his, to his best friend, um, I can't think of his name, but he wrote Luke to. Okay, Theophilus. Theophilus. <laughs> so I, I, he was giving him, it was a letter to him, and it started out all great. Theophilus, and then by the end, it was just Theophilus, so they became buddies instead of, uh, in, in my own opinion. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but now that, you know, now that it's wrote and it's God's word, it is a prescription for us now, mm. but when it first started out, mm. it was a letter to his buddy. So how rigid so is it? How, okay, okay, it's both. There's flexibility in it, there's also, but, but but there's also a path for us to follow. All right, so here's why. The fifth book of the New, your New Testament, the book of Acts that Luke wrote, is an account of how the early church did what G, fulfilled Jesus' final instructions. I mean, how do I know this? You know, Jesus gives us final instructions after he's risen, after he showed himself alive for 40 days, and then he says, this is what you're going to do. I'm leaving. I'm ascending back to the Father. So go and make disciples of all nations. 
Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. That's what Matthew says. Luke 24, Gospel of Luke 24, Jesus is in the same position. He's ready to ascend, but Luke records his words, gives us a few other things Jesus said. He says, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Go and stay in the city until you receive power to begin this mission. So Matthew 28, Jesus says, you're going to go to all nations. Great Commission. Luke 24 gives the Great Commission in different words. And you come to this fifth book now, Book of Acts, where, opening chapter, where do you find these guys? Waiting, because that's what Jesus said to do. And Luke, actually in the first several verses of the book of Acts, just kind of says, Theophilus, you know, I was writing you this account. Jesus showed himself alive for 40 days. And, uh, and here's where I left off. <laughs> when last I was with you, when last I wrote to you, I left off with Jesus saying, You shall be my witnesses, beginning in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the earth. That's Acts 1.8. So he's now set the scene to pick up where he left off. But the remaining now 27 chapters are going to lay out how that happened. So if you make that connection, if you say the book of Acts is connected to the book of Luke, which... In, and, the, and the Gospel of Matthew, in Jesus giving as his final instructions the Great Commission, and now it is showing us how the early church actually did that. Then there's a prescription there. Once you make that linkage, you see, this is what Jesus said to do. They're doing it. So now we ought to go to school off of what they did. Learn from what they did. But having said that, how rigid is that prescription, that model? How much can it be changed, if it can be changed? Any thoughts? All right, fine, I'll give you some. <laughs> Time's up, two seconds. <laughs> no, really, the, 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 the way I think we need to look at the book of Acts is that it is designed to give us a model for what it is we're supposed to do, what it is we're supposed to do, but not necessarily how it is we're supposed to do it. What we're to do, but not necessarily how you do it. Now, why do I say that? Because as you look through the book of Acts, the how part seems to be pretty flexible. The what is, is standard. What you're to do is do what Jesus said, make disciples. So that means you're going to have to see professions of faith. You're going to have to see people evangelize, come to Christ. And then you're going to have to see those people built up in the faith. Well, the second chapter of Acts, you find that very thing happening. Peter stands up and gives the gospel. People say, well, what do we do in response to this? He says, repent, be baptized. They do, 3,000 of them. They're baptized. Then Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, and they continued, remember, in the apostles' doctrine, and 
in fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 47 says that they, Acts chapter 2, that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. So there you see these guys doing the what? What are they doing? Evangelizing? Building people up in the faith? Continuing in the apostles' doctrine? Fellowshipping with, with one another? And then evangelizing others, enjoying the favor of, of all the people. So right there in Acts chapter 2, you see these guys fulfilling the Great Commission. They're doing the what of the Great Commission. Evangelizing, edifying, and continuing that process. But how they do it, think about how they do it. The how has got to have some flexibility. Look at Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Verse 42. Look at verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Verse 42. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Now, you look at verse 42. Here's the how, part of the how of of them carrying out the mission. How did they do it? In the temple courts. Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Right? If that's a prescription for how we're to do it, we ain't got no temple. (laughs) Right? So no temple courts for us. But in the temple courts, and then it says, and from house to house. You know, you know, this whole house-to-house thing. Um, what, what does it tell you about from house-to-house? Did they go in the house? Did they stand outside the house? Were there both believers and unbelievers there? I mean, you're not giving any detail about that, are you? So it's simply telling you that you know, they had a how to what it was they were doing. But it doesn't give, the book of Acts does not give you enough for you to have a full-fledged plan and outline for how you're supposed to go about it. Now, I've got a theory as to why that's the case. Why wouldn't God just give us a blueprint? Well, so why wouldn't he? Years and, and geography. So time and distance, right? Because even if it's in the same time, but it's, you know, a thousand miles away, you're still in a different culture. So you, and you put us, we're both. <laughs> we're 2,000 years away, and we're miles away. So the culture is completely different. So that's why we have to focus in the book of Acts on what it is we're supposed to do. And then we have to use biblical wisdom on how it is we go about it. And that was why for us, starting a church, I wanted to look and say, what did Paul do? What did Paul do? But I couldn't do the same thing Paul did. I don't have the marketplace. I don't have the synagogue. So what can we do that is equivalent to that in our culture, similar to that? 
And I believe that, I'm certain that's by God's design for the book of Acts to have enough flexibility on the how that it can then be applied in other cultures across time and across distance. Any other, everybody good with that? Look at three. Can we detect a pattern in Paul's approach from the time he entered a new city to the time he left? If so, to what extent is it binding as a model for a mission in our day? I've talked a bit about that, but what would you say? Yes, there's definitely a pattern. Um, Amen. For me, you always end up getting arrested. You know, now that's the part I don't like. I don't like the arrest part, okay? (laughs) It's mandatory that we get arrested. uh. But he just ends up in constant misfortune, but through that misfortune, people are allowed to see yeah. And then I have that Paul was usually in public too, which we talked about addressing a wide array of people. And I can't imagine that all those people were super friendly, you know, so he probably endured some ridicule. Yeah. As far as the second part, hmm. to what extent is it binding to a model today for mission, I think that we can realize the importance of engaging the masses and breaking down the barriers Excellent, thank you, Carl. Really, uh, you know, he's he's always, he's always getting arrested. That's one common theme you see. You know, we we joke about it, but that's the fact. That was the fact of life for Paul. You know, the getting beating, getting beaten, the hardships, the hostility. And so, how do we relate to that? I mean, how do we relate to that trend? I mean, the truth of the matter is, you know, the worst I get is somebody says those guys are idiots. I don't want to hear it. Somebody might argue with you, or that. They just don't come. They just don't. They just turn it off. They don't want to hear it. Okay. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I get nothing. I get nothing like that. And and most of us don't either, right? Now I'm going to put Bob on the spot a little bit. At work, at uh, now you still you still at the at the academy. Yeah. And so and I know you know you got you, you can't be witnessing all of, you know in class and and all of that. But you're in a fairly rough environment there, right? Um, but rough, n- but not necessarily, you, I'm asking. You know, how, what kind of opposition, if any, do you find toward your faith as it, as it comes out? None. And you have opportunity for it. People, they know where who you are. They know where you're coming from. You have opportunity within the... I call on it all the time. I still get no 
I go beyond where I know legally I should go. Okay. But because I know the administration is favorable to it. Okay. Nobody says or does anything about it. Okay. I'll, I'll pray huh. class. Wow. I'll pray quarterly class. Wow. We'll have a situation and I'll, I'll just I'll get down on my knees and pray at my desk out loud. Wow. Wow. Kids might be, you know, you know, raging against, against the machine or the man, or you know, I don't know, they're just being rebellious, <laughs> but but not against your Christianity, not against right? Against my yeah, 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 my yeah, 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 right. Well, okay. So even in, you know, what can be a, a challenging environment for a lot of reasons, you know, still even Bob is not getting opposition to his faith. So where do we get? We we just don't. Now, where would it be? You know, it's interesting. It kind of transitioned to something I was thinking. That that subculture, Bob, is extremely familiar with Christianity. Hmm. Now, it may be a version of Christianity sure. that's lost its power, hmm. but that is a you know that is a subculture that you know churches African American subculture, yeah, and. But you know, you, that's one difference here is we're looking at the places where Paul was going. The the only connection to the familiarity with the message of the Bible was the Jews, yeah. and they hated, for the most, by and large, they hated Paul and his yeah, message, yeah, yeah. The leadership at least yeah. in these different synagogues. So yeah. he was going to places that. At, at first, knew nothing, and maybe years and years down the road, they'd heard a little bit distorted versions of what Christians were. So, that's like the opposite. That's like Christianity. They're they're respectful of it because they're familiar with it, even though it has no power for them anymore personally. But these people, it's the opposite. They had. Yeah. So that's like one example why, hmm. you know, we have to be flexible in our methodology because we're we're going to a culture. So we're saying we, we, we can't even think of where we would really find it. I mean, if you go in the inner city, you're, you're going in a tough environment. If you, if you plan a church in inner city Detroit, you're going in a tough environment. There's, there's security issues and all of that. But again, is it hostility to Christianity per se? You know, we just don't have much of that, even in that here in America right now. Paul had it just about everywhere he went for reasons Zach has laid out. So what should we do with that? Well, I'm not looking for it. Thank the Lord. Okay, all right. Thank the Lord. But here's the big thing. We gotta, we've got to take advantage of the opportunity that the Lord has given us. You know, we're able to do this without relatively free of fear. So let's look at that as an advantage for the time that you have it. But there's no reason to just lament the past too much, but only enough to learn from it. But, you know, if you look, go back to the 40s and the 50s and evangelical Christianity in America, 
you read some of the articles, some of the books that were being written about how we're just going to set the world on fire, man. I mean, the Christian school movement, you know, the Christian colleges, the missionaries that we're going to send out, we're just going to set the world on fire for Christ. That didn't quite happen, did it? So why would you say it didn't happen? So you remember the 60s? Yeah, exactly. That means he was there then. If you remember the 60s, you weren't there. That's what they say. <laughs> but what did it? Well, affluence. And, and Francis Schaeffer, the late, great Francis Schaeffer, said that uh, the Christian theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer said that the two values toward the end of his life in the early 80s that Americans have are personal peace and affluence. And he's talking about Americans and its infected Christians. So here you had this, op- this great opportunity, and everybody's talking about what we're going to do with this great opportunity, but the opportunity was not seized the way it could be. So I, I think what we ought to do is, you know, we look at Paul and we say, wow, he had all that, op- that opposition. You know, he wasn't looking for it. If he could get away from it, he would. Jesus did the same thing. I mean, sometimes Jesus would go a different route. You know, he, he, was, he was not looking to be beaten. He was not looking to be persecuted. But he was willing to be. So I'm not looking for it either. And since it's not there, what I ought to do is thank the Lord, but also make sure that we take advantage of the fact that it's not there. And that we use the opportunity that God's given us. You think... Um Going forward, we're starting to see more, more opposition to the Christian worldview in areas like the issue of same-sex marriage and the, hmm. uh, that, that could start to change the comfort level that we have here. Could, yeah, yeah, yeah. So some of these issues could uh, cha- start to change that. Or, you know, we could see more hostility towards towards Christians. But as it stands now, I mean, I, I can say what I want. We can say what we want, right? And uh, I don't see that changing a whole lot in my lifetime. I mean, I don't know how quickly it could change. I mean, things can change quickly. I mean, the public opinion on same-sex marriage changed within just the last few years dramatically. So, you know, that might change in my lifetime. Maybe I'm a little too optimistic. But, but you know, uh, but if it does... You know, then we'll just have to take it on, and hopefully we'll have the courage, you know, to to do that. I was at Sanctity of Life service this afternoon, and uh, you know, I, I gave a message, same one I gave on Sanctity of Life Sunday here. That's that's what they asked me to do. But I'm telling you, I had about 20 people come and say, my pastor would never say what you just said, and I didn't say. I mean, I didn't say anything that shock you guys at all. I mean, well, you, most of you were here last year when I said it. You know, I just said, this is the way it is. This is, this is what the Bible says. This is what the political parties are doing. This is what the Supreme Court has said. You know, this is where we are. This is what we're up against. This is what we need to do. That was pretty much it. But they said, my pastor, and I had like 20 people tell me that. And it was like desperate. It was, it was ridiculous. These are committed people at this thing. 
you know, committed to the pro-life cause, and they're saying, could you come and say that at our church? <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> you know. But, I mean, really. And it was no, no great shakes. I mean, it was just straightforward stuff. So you get opposition to that. It's not politically correct. You know, so I guess I operate from the assumption that as Bible believers, we don't care whether it's politically correct or not. You know, we want to be kind in the way we present ourselves. Uh, we want to be as uh, winsome as we can be. But then we just got to tell the truth about it. And I'm assuming that we'll do that, politically correct or not. But this, that was a bit of an eye-opener this afternoon and how many people are not doing just very basic kinds of things. Number four, uh, what accounts for Paul's passion? Despite that adversity. Sir. Paul, uh, Paul doesn't ever seem to forget where he's come from. Mm. And he remembers very vividly what life apart from God was. At least that's what I detect in his writings. Mm. Yes. The value of his treasure. He understands that he's a servant. Mm. And I think that very revelation drives for him that is proof of not That's why he says that in the book of Acts, when he's leaving the church leaders, he says, I have no esteem for my own life. Mm. My only care is that I can joyously yes. carry out this mission which has been entrusted to me. And I think he even makes a reference of how low he is. Mm. So I think for Paul, it's just it's the revelation I think that Paul had at one point or another. Mm. Just mm. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that good. Wow yeah, I agree. That's a big part of it. His past, and he hasn't he hasn't lost the wonder of what Christ has done for him, right? But that's a problem for some of us. See, it's not, a pro- it's not a problem for you because you've recently come to Christ and you've come to Christ as an adult and you've come to Christ out of your particular background. But a number of us here came to Christ through Christian homes. So we don't, we don't let's be honest, we don't have the wonder that I'm saved because I didn't have the kind of wanton background of wanton sin that Paul had. So what do, how do I gain that wonder then? If I don't have that experience, how can I have the same kind of wonder at the grace of God in my life? You know, Aaron, your testimony, your testimony is on our website, so I can, I can give your testimony. <laughs> but Aaron's got a testimony of being saved as an adult, you know, uh, and a, a sinful lifestyle, and you know, God saved you out of that. And you, you know, so therefore you've, you, you can know that contrast, right? The before and after. You know, but for me, I grew up in church. My dad's a pastor. Go to a Christian, high, graduate from a Christian high school. You know, so how do I do that? How, how do you guys do it? Sir? I think uh, for me, it's, there's been periods in my life where, the true motives in my heart and mm. in the deep recesses that mm. sin that, that's in there is revealed to me and there, there are moments where I, I experience that kind of uh, awakening or um, 
Yes. That's an excellent, John, observation. Because what I said a minute ago about, you know, so with my background, my environment, I didn't have that life of wanton sin. Okay, so, but, but I've still got a sinful heart. And that's what I need to have exposed regularly. And that's what you're talking about. That's what God does for you from time to time. That's what people like us, you, you've got a similar, you grew up in church, you know, went to a one-room Christian school for a while, didn't you? <laughs> uh, an ACE school, right? Was it an ACE school for a while? Anybody know what that is? Okay. So John had that kind of sheltered environment uh, as well. So people like us, we're not in the world, but we've got the world in us. We're not in the world, but we've got the world in us. So get, So follow this. <clears throat> I read an article this week that I thought was very simple but quite insightful so I'm going to steal it and I'm going to use it but he he talks about uh, it goes to Ephesians 2 where Paul talks about really three forces at work that scripture mentions elsewhere as well that are the the enemies of the Christian soul the world you guys know these right the world the flesh the devil but he makes the point that depending on your background you'll tend to focus on one of those three. It's really, it's really an excellent point. Uh, if you grow up in a sheltered background, the worst thing somebody could be involved with is the world. See, and the cool thing is, I am much better, I am much better than people who are involved with the world because I've never been involved with the world. And that's the way we look at ourselves. You look at, you look at people who come from a conservative, fundamentalist, kind of sheltered background, that's the way we can tend to look at people who've been involved in the world because I've never been worldly. I've never been, right? So of those three, that's the worst, the world. If you're a Pentecostal, what's the one they focus on? The devil. It's always spiritual warfare all the time. I, I know this. I grew up Pentecostal. It's always spiritual warfare. It's always the devil's up to something. The devil's behind a bush. The devil's <laughs> look out for the devil. You know, whatever, whatever the devil. Really, it's spirit. It's the devil. And then there's so there's the world. There's the devil, but there's the flesh. And the truth is, the one we got to focus on. I've got to really focus on is the flesh. Because I haven't been really out in the world. But as I say, the world's in me. And so try to plug that into your own background. You know, if you, but if you've been in the world a lot, you, you know, you can, you can be somebody that says, you know, I was in it. I mean, it was, uh, so don't be that afraid of it. <laughs> but the Bible speaks a lot about the world and, and not being of the world and, and all of that. And so depending on your background, you can downplay one or the other of those. And we need to be careful to give all of those the weight that Scripture does. And especially given our own experience, some of those may be more prominent to us. You know, one of those three may be more prominent to us than, than the other. 
So I don't have Paul's wanton background of life of sin. But what I really need is a regular focus on the work of the sin nature and the flesh. And uh, those who, who have need to be very careful of the enticements of the world and the re-enticements of the world, right? Right? So, sure. I mean, that'll be an ongoing temptation uh, if you've been in it to get pulled back into it, right? It's going to be more of a temptation for you than it's going to be for me because of your background. But I'm going to have other temptations you don't have, right? Okay. So his past... His experience accounts for part of that. Here's another thing, though, that accounts for his passion. And that is his belief in his God-centeredness, his belief in the sovereignty of God. He believes the mission is God's. And he believes that whatever circumstance God sovereignly places him in, God's mission is still going to go forward. So he can kind of go with a reckless abandon. If I get arrested, God is sovereignly going to work through that somehow. Right? So he has this great confidence in the sovereignty of God to use whatever happens to advance the mission. So go for it. And if I wind up in jail, I can write Philippians. (laughs) And And then in chapter 1, I can say, you know, I'm in chains. But this is my paraphrase, but this is what the guy says. I'm in chains, but really the guys who are in chains are these palace guards who have to listen to me give them the gospel. Because they can't go anywhere. Their job is to be here with me. So now I've got a captive. (laughs) They think I'm captive. (laughs) But they're really the captive audience for this. So he's always seeing that God's at work in this no matter what happens. So that great confidence just keeps him going. Anything else? All right, we've just about killed it then. Because uh, number five, we talked about what extent should we wait until our motives are, are pure. If you have anything to add to that. But then the last one is, I don't want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> how would Paul react, you know, if he came to your, visited your church? What changes do you think uh, he would ask you to make? So, you know, brothers, the, uh, I, will, I will tell you that the struggle for me is to not overuse what I'm going to say to you such that it becomes an excuse. So it's a struggle that <clears throat> I, you know, I may or may not win. But for me, these 12 years at this church have been about trying to build toward a vision for the advance of the mission through God's church. And God has allowed us, he's changed the time frame, as I've talked about, but he's allowed us to just move forward differently than I planned originally, but within the same overall framework, and he's allowed us to move forward. And so for me, it's, it's always building this foundation so that we can launch off of that foundation to do greater things. But the struggle is that you are forever building and you don't get to the greater things. Do you, do you follow that? Does that make any sense? And so that's the struggle for me. That's something you could pray for me and our leadership team and our church about.
that we have the wisdom to know when we are at a point where we need to take what God has created now and take the next steps, take the next leap. Yeah, you know, I mean, well, and so it's always, okay, we get here. I mean, this is, this is a thing and, and, and one thing, not the only thing. And, and Lord, help us not to make it the only thing. But it's a thing and it's a big thing and it's a thing that takes up a couple of years, you know, to, to get it, to get a, a base of operation, you know, to get the thing extended, building it, that's okay. But I don't want to forever be saying we're building the foundation. I want to be, literally, this is forever building. You know, was, I told somebody the other day that, uh, you know, I heard a guy say, you know, Noah, you know, uh, turned to drinking after he had been involved in a building program for 120 years. <laughs> so just keep an eye on me. With <laughs> okay, but, but you just don't want to forever do that. So take a church plant. The truth is, that's part of that's part of the Pauline cycle. That's part of our vision. But now you have to be willing to pull the trigger on that. It's okay. God has allowed us now to establish a foundation from which we now go and do that. We take a next step. So, you know, as as Paul would come here, as I think about that, that what would he say? You know, if I were to sit down and have a one-on-one with the great apostle, yikes, and say, look, this is what we're trying to do. I'm trying to follow what you did. I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to do it, you know, in Trenton. And this, you know, this is the plan. You know, he might say, you know, you need to get with it. You know, you need to, you need to speed up the timetable. <laughs> you need to, you know, I don't know. That's a wisdom call. But the struggle is that it's safer to just say we're building. We're building, laying the foundation, and never, and then not get to the launching of all of the stuff that you've been building that foundation for. Now, I, I, I don't think we're there. Um, push it far to reach right now, though. Say what? <laughs> we only got the river, right? <laughs> to go further east, we can go to Grozeal. <laughs> go across the free bridge <laughs> to Grozeal. <laughs> So that's the way, you know, that's the way I look at it. But having said that, over the next couple of years, these will be cru- crucial time for us. Um, and our, the mission that God is carrying out and wants to carry out through this church. Training leaders, continuing to train leaders, training leaders for different levels of leadership, including pastoral leadership, launching church plant. Uh, that challenge, you know, gets a little bit greater when, you know, Pastor Matt says, I'm going to Florida. Um, so we all wish, you know, pa- of course, Pastor Matt, Godspeed with that. That's not a done deal yet, you know, but looks like it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, once I find out he's a Buckeye, maybe that'll kill it, you know. But, you know, so, all right, so, you know, Pastor Matt's going to go there. So, you know, God, God is at work working all that stuff out, of course, but... Uh, that's what we got to do over the next couple of years. And I just don't, I want to be wise. I want, personally, I want our leadership team, I want our church to be wise in making sure that we lay a very good foundation, but we don't just keep tweaking the foundation longer than we have to before we launch off of that.
into greater ministry. So that's my challenge. You guys see anything else that you can think of? All right. Well, thanks.